I felt like I was carrying all these things. I was carrying all these secrets and all these expectations and everything the world wanted me to be. And there was this little tiny box that I had never really shared with anyone. And so it was an Al-Anon where I could actually say out loud to someone that I have some really painful things that have happened to me and I haven't healed from those. And um, this is the truth. On Life Repurposed, you'll find a blend of practical wisdom and biblical inspiration that's designed to help you navigate everyday life with faith, purpose, and hope. We focus on personal and spiritual growth with a range of topics from improving your relationships and discovering your purpose to setting and achieving goals, plus tools and resources to help you live your repurposed life. I'm your host, Michelle Rayburn, the author of books and Bible studies about finding hope in the trashy stuff of life. Michaela Albertson, MD, is a family practice doctor turned mostly stay-at-home mom who is passionate about Jesus and all things ordinary. Since 2017, she has been writing and inspiring women to let go of striving for the world's expectations so they can fully embrace the good, hard, ordinary life God has planned. Life is beautifully ordinary after all. Michaela lives with her husband of 21 years just outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, and together they raise their five children who range in age from 18 to 7. Michaela invites you to lay down your endless chase for perfect and embrace this one messy, beautiful life exactly as it is with our perfect, loving God right by your side. Here's my chat with Michaela. I've been stalking you a little bit on social media to get to know you better. (laughs) Off air, I told you that when your book came across a list from your publisher, it intrigued me right away. And I reached out to your publicist and said, I really want to get to know Michaela. But I know that you're a medical doctor, and I'm curious to know if you always wanted to be a doctor or if it's something that came about later or if other people encouraged you to do that. Yes. So I would have told you if you asked me when I was little that I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. I wanted to do children's books. And so I was always kind of writing I do love people and I thought maybe I would do teaching or something. And it was somewhere in high school that my mom went to parent teacher conferences and came home from that. And she said, Hey, did you know that you're first in your class? (laughs) And I, I honestly didn't know that they kept track of that at that point. I was maybe a freshman or sophomore. And she said, yeah, you're, you know, your dad and I think you should go to medical school and you should be a doctor. And so that was kind of the first idea that, you know, the first time that that idea ever came to mind. And I thought, okay, well, I do really like kids. Like maybe I'll go be a pediatrician or something. And so I'm, I just sort of settled on that. And then that was the path that, that I was on going forward. I can relate to that. A guidance counselor had told me that I had the skills and the grades to go into nursing. And um, my mom was a LPN at the time, and I loved shadowing her occasionally at work. And so it was kind of that same thing where somebody said, you could do this and you should do this, and there's a market for this. And then Mm -hmm. I did it. So how long did you work as a medical doctor, or are you still working as a medical doctor? So that's a long, complicated story. I mean, maybe not that complicated. I worked um, 
doing both inpatient and outpatient medicine in Nebraska. I grew up in Nebraska and, and I started out working there and I worked about five years in a really busy practice, um, seeing hospital patients on the weekend and things like that. And then we moved to Utah, I want to say 11 years ago now. And when we moved here, I started working part-time for a group called on-site care. And I've worked with them in some capacity for the last 10 years. And it was actually just in November that I decided to step back mm. from that job for a little while and pursue writing full time and um, just take a little break from that. So I don't know where that part of me will go in the future. I still have an active medical license and I'm up to date on all of my education hours and things like that. But for now, I'm not working in clinic. I don't know if you've had people give you any uh, feedback about that, but um, I only worked for a few years. I still have my nursing license, but I did have uh -huh. people who said to me, you know, I, you went to school for all those years. And I've tried to explain to them that life is this journey. And uh, yeah. I don't regret anything I did, even though what I'm currently doing really doesn't have a lot to do with that degree. I don't know how you feel about that. Oh, yes. I think that's been my internal struggle for years <laughs> now, right? Like you have this thing that you've put so much time into, and I still have all my student loans just mm -hmm. kind of waiting for me that we just pay off little by little. And oh, I think I was using my young children as an excuse for a while, like, oh, as soon as they're in school, then I will go back to clinic, I think, in, a, in some capacity, probably part time. And now my youngest uh, just finished kindergarten. And so she's in school full time. <laughs> uh, and I haven't felt like I wanted to go back to clinic in that capacity. So I, I am trying to sort of transition into using my, my medical background in my writing. Yes. Because I, I do think that, I, and I don't know if maybe you feel the same, that so much of writing stories and love of story um, is in medicine as much as it is in my writing that I do now. So, so many beautiful experiences and personal stories um, that have been woven into my life came through patients that I met over a long time or even only in passing that I think changed me. And so I do love to share some of those stories and um, I love to write about that and just share that with other women as well. So I'm hoping that I can sort of marry those two loves that I have both writing and women and sort of well-being and health into one. I just don't know exactly how that will yeah. work going forward. But yeah, I do get that feedback a lot. It, I love it when we don't have the full picture because that that's the it really shows that then God's at work unfolding it as we go. I don't know if you discovered, um, I know you talk in your book quite a bit about being a perfectionist or maybe a recovering perfectionist. And I found that when I was working, outside of the home as a nurse, it was really hard for me to come home because I would spend a lot of time at home with the babies kind of going over and over all the things that had happened while I was at work. And uh, really, I was torn between those two worlds. And so when you talk yeah. about perfectionism, I'd love to hear more about how that has looked in your life. Yeah, I think I was experiencing that as well. It was like I was at work, but then on my lunch hour, I was planning kids' birthday parties or, you know, I was making phone calls or whatever, um, checking in on them or, or doing things that had to do with home. And then when I was at home, I couldn't fully 
be there. I, I would have days off during the week and I often would have to call during nap time to see if someone, you know, to check on someone or to look up lab results or something um, or pass something off to a colleague. And so it was really hard to feel fully present mm-hmm. in either of those two worlds. And that was so frustrating to me because I wanted to do <laughs> the best job possible in both of those things. Right. And so I think that, you know, that's been part of the pull for me, even still, I think. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that I'll always struggle with, that that feeling of wanting to be, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to do the best I can do at it. Even even when we're doing something that someone else told us we should do, a perfectionist has this way of throwing ourselves into it and wanting to be the best at everything, even if it's not where we specifically feel God has called us. And there was a quote that you had in your book that I'd like to read that really resonated with me. You said, who I was became all tangled up in who everyone else needed me to be. And when I succeeded at fulfilling the world's expectations, well, then I didn't feel so different and alone anymore. I'd love to know more about how being who others wanted you to be has affected you versus being who God has called you to be. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of backstory to that, um, mm-hmm. that this book is the first time that I really started talking publicly or sharing publicly about, I have a history of childhood sexual abuse. And so I think the story that I started telling myself when I was really, really young, when that happened at the hands of a, a male relative, that there was something wrong with me or that I had done something um, to cause that. And that I could have control over it. Like if I would just, I could outrun it. If I would just out achieve and out strive, then I wouldn't have to tell anyone. They would never have to know that there was this flawed thing about me. And um, I could just sort of shove that aside and pretend it had never happened. And so I think that was how I got on the path of, okay, I'm going to be a straight A student. I'm going to do all the things. I'm going to, like I was reaching for this this thing that I was never going to find because I was sort of ignoring this piece of me that that had affected me so deeply. And so um, I think that's where uh, it, it took a lot of growing up and a lot of looking at the truth, I think, and looking at old wounds to begin to move past that. You tell some real and raw things in your book. You really don't hold back for the reader. And not only do you you tell, but you show, like you bring the reader into the story. I was so gripped by the chapter where you talked about opening a box, something about there's something wrong with you, what you were just talking about. Um, I also found it ironic that it was during an Al-Anon coaching meeting where this all started to come out. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up at that Al-Anon meeting. I did a pretty good job of like chasing this perfect life for a while. Like I thought, okay, I'm going to be able to do this, right? I'm I'm on the path. I'm doing all the things. I went to college. I got into the medical school of my choice. I married my high school sweetheart we were just on this path to carry on with happily ever after. Right. And not that I consciously ever thought I'm running from this thing. It's only really in retrospect that I've looked and thought, Oh, I think that that, you know, that's what I was doing. Um, 
but it was somewhere in that first year of marriage to my high school sweetheart that I realized that he was drinking a lot. And then I understood that he was beginning to use drugs and that became a bigger and bigger and bigger problem for him and for us and for our marriage. And, uh, he, there many things happened. That was something in the book that I had to be really careful about. I wanted to share my part of the right. story and, and not share the parts of the story that are only his or that, you know, are, are his to keep, but, um, it ended up that he was forced into rehab. Um, and I, through that, figured out what Al-Anon was. And um, there's a part in the book where I talk about, like, the first time that I was sitting down in a room like that with other people. And I was really feeling sorry for myself for being there and just, you know, thinking still that I was alone, even in that room. And then I I heard these people stand up and start to share bits of their story and really tell the truth. And it became this place where I could go, where I didn't have to pretend to be anything. And I didn't have to be good at anything. And I didn't have to strive for anything or achieve anything. I could just come there and I could fully be myself. And it didn't really fix any of the problems that were going on at home, but it it started to sort of fix these little pieces of me, I think, from the inside out. And um, I had never, I grew up Catholic. I went to church. I, I got all my sacraments, but I, I don't know that I really had much spirituality, I don't think, until I went and started sitting in al rooms mm-hmm. and telling the truth with other people. So um, that story that you mentioned with the boxes um, was really just the analogy of I felt like I was carrying all these things, I was carrying all these secrets and all these expectations and everything the world wanted me to be. And there was this little tiny box that I had never really shared with anyone. And so it was an Al-Anon where I could actually say out loud to someone I have some really painful things that have happened to me and I haven't healed from those. And um, this is the truth. And that person who I told just took it so tenderly and, and just loved me. Um, And I think that was the first time that I'd really ever felt that as well. Yeah. You talk about being heard and understood. And before that you had this other really cool analogy of going into that meeting with a big puffy coat of martyrdom. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's what happens when I've I've met with other fellow podcasters who talk about PTSD from a childhood trauma or something and just um telling the story and thinking, well, people are going to feel sorry for me or they're going to um react in a certain way. And then you talked about how people reacted. Mm -hmm. And so if you can share a little bit about that puffy coat analogy, I think some listeners will relate to that. Yeah. I think a lot of people like to call it like armor or whatever. And I use the puffy coat because I was just, I was just protecting myself, I think from Mm -hmm. everyone. And I was so angry when I sat down there, I was angry that I had to be there. I was angry at my husband and that he was sort of ruining these life plans. And I didn't think any of these people would understand. Um, and I just kind of talk about how 
I went up there and told my story. So at the meeting I went to, you would go up to a podium and you would actually talk. Not all of them were like that, but that one was. And I sort of expected a reaction. Like I wanted people to sort of like shake their heads and, you know, give me like, oh, I'm sorry, honey, look. And they didn't. It, it, they, they didn't look shocked. They just listened and smiled at me and nodded like, Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. My alcoholic's done that too. Or, you know, things like that. And for some reason that made me angrier for a while because I, I was living in that martyrdom. I think like, well, I'm, I'm just doing everything. I'm holding everything together here. I'm raising these kids and I'm, you know, paying for things and they don't understand. And then it was finally just like taking off that coat. I didn't have to be so hot. I have to be so angry all the time. And I could just kind of, again, just be there as myself. And it took a while for me to realize like how refreshing it is for someone to not have that response to you. That that like a no response is actually pretty refreshing sometimes. Um, I learned so much there and from the people that, that I met there and the stories that I heard there and and it, I think, changed the way that I'm able to relate to people um, outside of Al-Anon or my patients in exam rooms mm-hmm. and things. Um, I think then they can have the freedom to talk to me and I'm not going to have some reaction to what they've said. And I can see that on patients' faces sometimes, like how refreshing that is. Tell you what's going on and not have you have a reaction, really. I, I think that illustration is just so powerful because when we think about it as armor, we're protecting ourselves and we don't really notice how much it's affecting us. And when you talk about the puffy coat, any of us who have been dressed in too many layers can relate to that discomfort of, you know, protecting ourselves with that. And it being so, you talk about being so hot and the relief when you take it off. And it's such a good analogy because anger is hot, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I that freedom of removing it and then being truthful with one another. And then you talk about wanting an ordinary life. <laughs> and I think, you know, the first part of your book, you tell a lot of your story and it's not really an ordinary story. You experienced a lot of pain, whether it was in childhood or in your marriage. And so um, I'd love to know, you, you have two sections of the book, Surrendering Perfect, and then you have Discovering Beauty Amid the Rubble. And I think listeners here can relate to that. So um, what is significant to you about these two sections? I had a hard time figuring out how the book should be separated. I actually had a <laughs> conversation thinking, well, how do I, you know, how do I put it? I thought maybe it'd be in several parts. Um, and then it was just a talking out loud with a friend that I was like, well, I feel like there was this before life a little bit. And, and then there's this after and I think what changed is what I was looking for, what I was searching for. And, and that before life was I really wanted to drive my way out of it, that perfect was the goal. And then in that after bit, when I learned that, oh, everyone has a story and everyone has a struggle and sometimes it's really terrible. And uh, I tell a few stories about patients that more than anything in the world, what they would like is an ordinary day. They would like a day without chronic illness or loss. And they just want Saturday morning pancakes. Like ordinary takes on this new 
shine, I think, when you're not living in it. And so I'd sort of reached that point when my husband went to rehab again, and I really had this belief that he was going to die. He was either going to get better that time or he was going to come home and, and die. Like I, it was um, really hard to admit that to myself and out loud. And I remember thinking like, all that perfect stuff is so silly. And what I really want is a sober husband and a marriage and a family and like a regular home. I I, I don't just a regular life where I drive kids around and like take them to soccer and stuff because that, that wasn't what I was living for a long time. And so um, much of living an ordinary life is sort of just accepting where you're at and finding beauty there. So I think it just sort of changed my outlook on, on what our goals are. You talked about how your, how the childhood abuse deeply affected you. And you said you began practicing medicine to heal the sick and broken while you were brokenhearted yourself. And in one place you said that God uses our brokenness and brings beauty to our hard stories in order to transform our lives. How did being a doctor then bring healing for you in that second phase? Yeah, I think that I like to look at healing as an ongoing process. Like I don't know that we ever are healed. We're never just yeah. there, right? We don't reach a plateau, but I do think understanding where my broken parts are and where my sort of sharp edges are has helped me to just be with other people who are in broken parts of their stories and then just accepting each other and and those stories is the healing in and of itself. Mm. So I tell a little story in there about uh, sea glass and how I took all those broken pieces and just sort of put them in my pocket for a while. And I carry them around with me and, and they're always with me. But I think as I, when I pull them out now, they're not so jagged and sharp anymore. They're getting smooth and beautiful like sea glass can be. And so I, I don't know that God gives us hard stories to change us, right? I don't want to say, oh, I'm so much better now that I had these right. hard things. I don't prefer it, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I would still choose to maybe not have experienced those things. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of of your podcast and just repurposing the trashy stuff or finding beauty in the rubble because it is there if we look for it and we can find yeah. it even just in the garbage heap, right? Yeah, that's really what it's about. You know, I I make it clear that a life repurposed is not about seeing that God caused something and then tried to bring something beautiful out of it. Instead, it's we all have hard things because of being alive here on earth. And in yeah. the middle of those things, there is something beautiful. And God is the source of that beauty. But I don't see God as the source of the trauma. He's just there with us. And so yeah. um, that's that's my passion for people to hear. There was a chapter that you titled Uncurated, and I really related to just the title alone and then the content as well. But um, in my bio on Instagram, I have imperfect and uncurated as part of my description of myself because we live in a curated society. So uh, why do you think that pursuit of perfection is so prevalent in our culture? Well, I think marketing is really powerful, right? Marketing and um, 
and money. And so I, I just, I'm so passionate about that right now because I'm working on a new project and I've been sort of writing to that as well, that I think we're being sold a lot of things like things that make us prettier and thinner and healthier and more beautiful somehow. And mm-hmm. so even from a very young age, we're sold that the answer's out there somewhere. Like mm-hmm. it's available to you if you can just find the right thing that will give it to you. And as women, I think a lot of times it's a cleanse or a, you know, essential oil or a, you know, whatever is being promised. <laughs> um, and so it's this idea that, that it's attainable or it's achievable. Um, and now we have marketing at our fingertips all day. So we're scrolling through these curated messages and these curated photos. And in the middle of those things, marketing comes in and says, oh, would you like this skincare product or would you like this thing? And so it's it's inescapable, I think. You said that perfect is pretend. And I find I struggle with this because as an author, I'm I'm supposed to market my books. And I I don't want to be this artificial, this pretend person. And so I don't know if you've experienced that in marketing a book of really trying to find that balance. My goodness, yes. I love (laughs) writing and I love sitting down at my computer and I love putting it together and I'm so excited to share it. And I'm really terrible at marketing because you're marketing this book, but in so doing, you're sort of marketing yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be a writer, you have to have a platform and you're trying to grow your platform and you want to have as many readers as possible and Mm -hmm. and all that pretty stuff like it, it sells and it's mesmerizing. And and so that part is so hard for me. If I could just sit behind my computer and write and say all these (laughs) things and then I just am like, okay, here it is. Read it if you want. That's about all I want to say. So that is such a hard, hard tricky part about doing what we do. I'm trying to flip that script a little because you said I'm terrible at marketing and I'm trying to tell myself that maybe I'm terrible at the expectation of marketing and maybe I want to be terrible at that. Maybe I want to market in a way that is different. And so maybe that's why I'm so drawn to repurposing things because they aren't smooth and perfect even when they're repurposed there's still some flaws there and I'm okay with that yeah I agree I I shouldn't I should learn how to retrain that way of speaking because you know of of saying I just am really awful at marketing I don't enjoy marketing the way I've tried to do it sometimes or the way maybe we're expected to do it sometimes yeah the should the way we're supposed to do it the should yep I love talking with people. I love things like what we're doing right now. And um, I I think it's, again, about being true to myself and kind of showing up to social media when it works for me and then taking breaks when I need it. Mm -hmm. Or trying to, when I put my email newsletter out every month, like I'm trying to be truly authentic in there and I'm not always selling something. And so I think it's, okay, I got to just be me still. You know, as always, no coat, no armor, no nothing, just like show up and and the people and hope that the people who want to read or listen will show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you use this analogy of balancing a pile of boxes with all the different 
identities and um, expectations. And so in so many areas of life, we can put those on ourselves professionally, as mothers, um, sometimes in our Christian circles of people we know, you know, it's like each area of life has its own set of boxes. Yeah. So I'd love to know how do people begin to uh, first release those things that weigh us down, but then how do we see the beauty in ordinary life? Like, what do we cultivate in order to begin to see that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's something I'm working on now and the project that I'm working on now, like cutting through some of the noise and the marketing and the things that are being sold to us and really trying to get down to, okay, maybe that's even fine for her or for her, for her over there. But like, let's look at what's for me Um, and, and being able to get rid of the rest. And I, I'm not great at doing that. Sometimes it took me a couple of years even to leave this job that I knew I didn't want to be at anymore because I wanted to do this other thing over here. But people's perceptions and people's expectations and what they're going to say. I mean, that's really heavy. Yeah. So um, giving up some income, (laughs) giving up some income and being okay with that. Yeah. One of the things that's been huge for me is just connection. And I don't need a lot of connections, but just a few connections with people who are really close in that inner circle um, has helped me a lot with just figuring out, I think, what is for me and maybe what's not. Um, So that's something I always encourage. And then as for ordinary life, I mean, I think it just takes kind of an intentionality about it. Um, You don't have to look far to come across some beautiful ordinary moment And so I think even just listening to this today, it's like, oh, yeah, you'll notice something I think now Mm -hmm. that's perfectly ordinary that you would have maybe overlooked that you'll think, oh, this is what she's talking about, right? It's like when you first come down in the morning and your kids sitting at the table eating breakfast and those clinking cereal bowls or, you know, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that you just stop and like, just look around your life and, and it's, it's hard to miss. I think. Yeah. It's easy to miss, but if we're thinking even about that word ordinary, it's hard to miss. I have a my high school senior graduated going off to college. And so I feel like I'm very aware of these little moments that are happening this summer, either me with him or I'm noticing him with a younger sibling or something. And I'm just sort of storing those little ordinary things away, like where he puts his shoes and how they're never in the shoe basket, but they're there in the middle of the floor. And (laughs) I am just aware of these small things that really can be fleeting, I think, sometimes, or sometimes it's things that do show up every day. You know, every day I go out in my garden and I water the flowers and it's kind of the same routine every day. And I could miss it. I could hurry past it and just get it done, or I could just stand there and be like, wow, that there's this ordinary thing I get to do every yeah. time. And what a gift that is. I think it's just even putting that word ordinary in your brain. Pretty much most of your life is ordinary stuff, dishes and trash and dinner and groceries yes. and kids. <laughs> and I mean, right. Um, but yeah, I think I'm reminded that there was a time when that's what I wanted so much. Um, mm. And now I get to do that so many days. Mm. And I feel really lucky to get to do that. 
I use my phone camera to look at things sometimes to reframe, um, not to take a perfectly curated picture to put on social media, but as a way of reminding myself of those ordinary moments, because I'm the kind of perfectionist who, well, my husband, I go for a hike, I, I stop and take a lot of pictures. And in the past, I would want this perfect scene. Not that long ago, we went for a walk on a tall peak and the Canadian wildfire smoke was pretty bad. And so the view was really terrible. We couldn't see much. We're just on top of a hill. But there were these wildflowers. They were really weeds that were growing. And I took this photo and it wasn't really with the intent of sharing it, but with the idea that I want to scroll back through my pictures later and see that there was this perfectly beautiful thing in front of me even though I was looking for the scenic overlook. And so I do that a lot, little pictures that I zoom in. And my husband's very patient when mm -hmm. I stop to take those, knowing that I'm going to always be stopping to take a photo. But yeah, that's that's just my personal way of jarring in those ordinary moments. Yeah, I love that. I I still scrapbook. Like I still, mm, yeah. I still old school scrapbook. I print pictures and I put them in. And I don't know how many years ago it was, but... Um, I don't know if you ever heard of Project 365. It's just like a, it's a familiar. Yeah, it's a photo a day. A photo a day. Okay. Yeah. And I don't do that really. But the idea of capturing just day to day stuff, um, that has always, I realize when I look back at scrapbooks now, I have always only captured day to day stuff. I take maybe a picture or two on birthdays, I put it in there. But I love, looking back now and seeing like, oh, this is what our messy kitchen looks like, or look at how they <laughs> threw their bags on the floor or like whatever it is, um, yeah. those, those little things. So yeah, I love capturing that as well. You wrote your book. It, it's kind of a memoir, but you, obviously you didn't write it as a how-to manual for somebody, but there's so many ways that like someone else's story can teach us something, even if they don't set out to teach us something. So I'd love to know a little bit more about what made you decide to write the book and what is the message you hope readers take away from it? Really, it's the takeaway from today's conversation as well. Yeah, sure. I, well, in all honesty, when I set out to write the book, I did it for me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't really a writer yet and I didn't have a platform and I, you know, I didn't think I had any business being in writer world. I just wanted to write this story uh, and this truth of who I am, I think, just for me. And it was sort of like, could you do that? Could you put that together in a book? And so I did. And then when I was done with it, I thought, I could get like a pizza or something. You know, I just, I took one little step at a time. And then I did get an agent and it was like shocking to me. And then I thought, oh, I guess maybe we could send it out like to publishing houses and see what happened. And then, um, so I just had no even intention. I don't think of, of anyone necessarily reading it when I first started. And so it was like that first draft, that first pass through was for me, telling a story that I needed to tell. And then on on subsequent passes through, it kind of became more for my reader because I've been so changed by stories. I love reading memoir. I love my patient stories so much or things that have happened that have just shaped and changed me, even when I wasn't part of the story. And so I wanted to do that for my readers. And so it has just been this, really a gift, I think, to get to do it. 
um, I, it's been one little thing at a time and I'm still always shocked when something works out and it, and it's happening. You know, I, I just signed another book contract over the summer and I'm still just like, Oh, I get to do this. It's just, <laughs> uh, so much fun to me and it's such a gift to me. And so, um, I think the message that I want to say for readers is that life is hard. There are hard stories. There are terrible, awful things that happen sometimes. And there is beauty too. And so those two things can happen. They don't necessarily happen because of each other, one from the other, but you can find beauty there too. And so um, that's what I hope you'll that you'll take away from this book that I've written and put out, Ordinary on Purpose. And I think even in the narratives that I'm still writing going forward, there's beauty here too. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Where can people connect with you? Sure. I am on Facebook and Instagram. Both of those are Ordinary on Purpose. And then my website is ordinaryonpurpose.com. I put new blog posts up there. And then I also have a monthly newsletter that I send out with just like a little um, letter and some links to podcasts or things maybe I've been on or I've enjoyed listening to or things I'm reading. Uh, you can find me in, in any of those places. And people can get a sample chapter of the book as well, right? Is that for signing up for your newsletter? They can actually just get a sample chapter by heading over to my website. There is a link okay. on like a um, the page about the book. You can get a sample chapter over there. I do have a little ebook that they could get for free if they want to join the newsletter. So I'd love to have them. I will link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Michaela, is there anything we haven't covered today that you would really want our listeners to hear? Gosh, we talked about such great stuff. I feel like I could talk to you like all yeah. day. <laughs> you do such a good job. Like you've been so succinct with things. There's so much in your book, so much in your story that's not even in your book. And you're really good at boiling that down into like the little <laughs> nugget. So I love that. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. So we've covered a lot. I, I think we've talked about ordinary and how much I love that. I think most of our lives happen in ordinary moments. And so let's not miss it. Trying to chase something else, something perfect, something that's not really us. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend some time this afternoon with my listeners and with me. We so much appreciate you. Thank you so much. You'll find the show notes for this episode at michellerayburn.com slash 160. And there I will link to Michaela's book and to her website, her socials, and any resources we talked about in this episode. I'm also sending out a discussion guide for the episode to my mailing list. If you're somebody who's listening in regularly and you'd like to get those discussion guides and printable resources, sometimes they're devotional, sometimes it's a worksheet or a quiz or something for you to work through, those are on my mailing list. And so you can subscribe to that right there at michellerayburn.com as well. Here's to all of us living the life that God has created for us, not some artificial version of perfection, but the beautiful life exactly as it is with our perfect loving God right by our side. So I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Michaela. I am looking forward to looking for those ordinary moments in everyday life where I can celebrate where God shows up and shows us beautiful things in the midst of our challenges. I hope you have a great week and I will see you next time. 
You've been listening to Life Repurposed. If you'd like bonus resources sent to your inbox each week, be sure to sign up at michellerayburn.com 